Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Acts chapter 4. We're beginning a brand new series today called Bold. Uh, and the idea behind bold is that God has called you to live a life. We were talking about that all through Joseph. There's a dream and a destiny that God has for you. But now we're going to look at some more of the practicals of how do we enter into that. And the way that we do that is by living a bold life for Jesus. We're going to be taking a look at bold prayer, bold unity, uh, bold evangelism. But this week we're starting out with a bold mindset. The way that you think of yourself, the way that you think of what it is that God's called you to do and having boldness in that. As I was going through resolutions this year, there were lots of things that I was wanting to do. I recalled last year, I had my little checklist to see what I did. I wanted to lose 10 pounds. Uh, there was a 10-pound weight change, but I, I gained 10 pounds instead of lost them. So it's half credit on that one. And I wanted to journal more, and I opened my journal, and I had three entries in it. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, this year I'm going to do better. And one of the things that I really want to improve on is my journaling, especially when it comes to the things that God's speaking to me and the things that my kids are doing because I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old and they're hilarious. And I love the little precious memories. I want to record these things so I can always go back to it and remember them. And so I had my first entry. I was putting Eason to bed, my two-year-old boy, and he was, it was just a very affectionate time. He was hugging onto my neck and telling me, he's like, I love you, Daddy, and giving me kisses on the cheek. And it's like, oh, I want to remember this forever. And I, I told him, I said, you know, Eason, someday you're going to be a daddy. And you're going to have a little boy or a little girl. And they're going to call you Daddy, and they're going to tell you that they love you. And he got a big smile on his face. And I said, what are you going to name if you have a little boy or a little girl? What are you going to name them? He goes, I'm going to have a boy. I'm going to name him Baby Jesus. I was like, all right, that's good. I said, well, what if you have a girl after that? He's like, no, no girls. I have another boy. I said, well, you don't really get to choose that. What if you have a girl? He's like, no girl. I have a boy, and I name him Sally. <laughs> so I went, and that was my first entry in the journal for this year. You know, we love kids. Kids are awesome. They say hilarious things. They do hilarious things. But more than just how cute and how funny they are, we love kids because it's a reminder of life. It's a reminder of promise and potential that's in someone. But we as parents have to help them go from just being cute little balls of potential and promise and help lead them into growing into mature adults so that the, the promise and the potential is reached and maximized inside of their lives. If you don't do that in your kid, as cute as six-month-olds are, and the things that they do, you kind of look over because they're six months old. But if they get to be 20 years old and they're waking you up three times a night because they're hungry and they're still making duties in their diapers and they're putting applesauce in your Blu-ray player, it's not nearly as cute as when they're six months old. There has to be some maturity that takes place. There has to be growing that occurs inside of them. And you know, the same thing is true for us as Christians. I love new Christians. You know, I remember that moment of where I decided that I was going to follow Jesus. I had this revelation of his love for me and his grace had been poured out in me through Jesus and that through Jesus I had forgiveness of my sins because of what he had done on the cross. And the Holy Spirit came into me when I said, Jesus, forgive me my sins. I follow you now. You're the Lord of my life. I'm going to follow your plan for me. And what happened was I became a spiritually alive person. I was a newborn little baby infant Christian. And I was cute. I said funny things that didn't make a lot of sense, but I was passionate about it. I had a lot of zeal. 
But you know what? If I just continue to live as a little newborn infant baby Christian full of promise and potential, I wouldn't be living out what it is that God's called me to do. There has to be maturity that takes place. But what happens a lot of times is we look at salvation as the moment that we've been waiting for our whole life. This is what our whole life has been been leading to, and this is the end of it. But that's just the beginning. That decision to become a Christian and follow Jesus is the beginning. That's your your born-again experience, the Bible calls it. You're now a spiritually alive creation, but you have to mature from there. You have to grow from there because God has plans and purposes for each and every one of you. And we have to walk into those things. What happens so many times, though, is we become like the 40-year-old that never moved out of their parents' house. We're living in the basement, eating Captain Crunch in our underwear, playing Xbox. We have no plans, no dreams, no purpose. That's just it. That's all that life ever will be for us. But that's not the life God's called us to. God has plans for you. God has purposes for you. There are things that he wants to lead you into, but before you can do that, there has to be some growth and some maturity that begins to take place inside of you. And that's why we're talking about boldness. Because boldness is such a key cornerstone of how it is that you live out this life that God has called you to. And when we look at the book of Acts, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, because in it we see a historical account of what happened in the church with these brand new baby Christians and how they walked into God's calling on their lives. And it's a great blueprint for us. We can look back to and we can reference this and see these are the areas where I'm getting hung up on. How is it that we can push through this and press through it? What is it that my life is supposed to look like? What are we as a church supposed to look like? Because we can see the accounts and the struggles that they go through. We see their failures. We see the successes of the church. All of these things are recorded for us. And it starts out with this in the beginning of Acts. I'm going to briefly summarize what's happening getting up to chapter 4. Jesus has been crucified, he has been buried, and he's been raised from the dead. Completely took all the disciples by surprise. They didn't expect him to die, they didn't expect him to be raised from the dead. But Jesus appears to them and begins to teach them. And before he ascends into heaven, he says, now there's a job for you. This is the calling that you have as Christians, as the church, this is what you're supposed to do. You need to go out into all the nations and you need to make disciples of me. And they're like, okay. So he gives them the final charge, and he's getting ready to go up to heaven. And he says, but before you do that, I don't want you to get to work quite yet. I want you to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples go, and for 10 days, they're holed up in a room. They're scared. They're praying. They're fasting. They're seeking God. And they don't know what exactly it's going to look like when the Holy Spirit comes to them. They don't know what it is, really, that they're supposed to do to accomplish the Great Commission. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they go out in boldness and empower these scared, ragtag group of people. They go out there and they begin to declare the goodness of God and what's happened in Jesus. That he was the Messiah that we're all waiting for. And something miraculous takes place. Is that everybody who's gathered there from all the nations of the world are hearing the gospel and the wonders of God proclaimed to them in their native tongue. This group of illiterate, uneducated, common fishermen from the north of Galilee are speaking in the languages of all the nations. And everybody says something's going on here because this is an impossibility. And Peter recognizes this is an opportunity for me to preach the gospel. And so he gets up and he explains to them what's happening. He explains to them that Jesus is the Messiah, the sacrifice for their sins. And it says in that day, 3,000 people 
decide to follow Jesus. So it goes from a church of 120 people to 3,000 people in one day. So let's think about that. Uh, and here we usually have about 120 people. So this is like the size of the people that were Christians before this moment. And then they go from this size to 3,000. If that happened to us today, oh please, Lord, please. We would have to have eight services next Sunday. And there would be a strict do not invite anybody else policy in place. You cannot invite people to church. There is simply no room. Think about that kind of growth. Isn't that, I mean, it's mind-blowing. We can't even understand what that looks like. But this isn't a one-time event for the new followers of Jesus. It's not that this one miraculous thing occurs and then it goes back to life as normal. For the followers of Jesus, this becomes the new normal for life. This becomes the way that life in ministry is. It's just the way life goes for them. It's not every day this happens, but as you look through the book of Acts, you see over a course of 40 years, lots of miraculous things happening. In fact, the very next story that we read about is in, uh, in Acts chapter 3, where John and Peter, they're going to the temple to pray. They've just had this incredible 3,000 people get saved day, and they're going to the temple to pray, and they see a crippled guy who's been crippled for birth, and he's always outside of the gates of the temple. He's begging for money. And I love it, you know, it's the whole uh, money I don't have, what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ and Nazareth, get up and walk. That's bold. When you tell a guy who's been crippled since birth to get up and start walking around, you've got to have some confidence there. And he gets up. And he starts jumping up and down. He says he's leaping for joy and praising God. And everybody else that's coming into the temple who have seen this guy every day of their life as they go into the temple, they see something impossible has happened here. And they're all wondering, they're trying to figure out what is going on. How is it that this crippled guy is running around, jumping up and down, dancing and praising God? And Peter, once again, says, hey, here's another opportunity. So he tells everybody about Jesus, and they grow from 3,000 believers to 5,000 believers. From 120 to 5,000 in a very short period of time. And what would happen if you had 5,000 people who were passionate about Jesus? who took seriously the Great Commission, who took seriously the proclamation of the gospel, what would happen? We would see the city changed. We would see this world changed. History would be altered in just the same way that we see it with the disciples because what happened with them is in the next uh, 60 or so years, they went from a group of 120 people to what most people estimate was over a million Christians by 100 A.D., from 120 to 1 million. That's exponential growth. That's crazy. That's what I want. I like crazy. Crazy's good. But here's what happens. Anytime that you start really seeing God do miraculous things in your life, Anytime you see a great move of God in your city and you're living out your calling, resistance is going to come. And it comes for the disciples. Because Satan doesn't want people living in freedom. Satan doesn't want people being reconciled to their father and finding the life that Jesus alone can give them. He wants to keep them in bondage. He wants to keep them separated from God. He wants to continue to bring destruction into their life. And so he will use things like hatred and greed and jealousy and everything else that's in the human heart 
to stir that up to then bring resistance to you and what you're doing. And that's what happens for John and Peter. As they're preaching to the crowd about what's happened in the life of this crippled man, it says that the Sadducee leaders take note of it. And they don't like this because they're the religious elite at the time. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They don't believe that he was God. And so they have them arrested. And the next day after they've been arrested, <clears throat> they're brought before the council. All the priests, the high priests, uh, all the, the big power players in the temple are there. And they're wanting to know what's going on. Who is this Jesus that you're preaching about? And so Peter again recognizes, here's another opportunity for me to preach the gospel. And maybe he was expecting the same kind of result of now everybody here is going to get saved too. But this time, that didn't happen. And they told him, if you preach of Jesus again, there are going to be consequences. It's going to cost you something if you keep preaching about this Jesus who was raised from the dead, who offers forgiveness of sins, who is the Son of God. And then they release him. And they go back and they tell all the other disciples what's been going on. And it says that they begin to cry out to God in Acts chapter 4. This is where we pick up in verse 29. This is what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That word boldness, what that means is confidence. It means that there's daring to them. It means courageous. It means to be fearless in the face of danger. That's what they're praying for. When they came to God and prayed, they didn't say, God, would you make the scary people leave us alone? Would you make them like us? Would you make our life easy and comfortable for us again? That's not what they prayed for. They prayed, God, would you give us a boldness in the face of resistance? That we would be fearless no matter what the danger is that comes against me. God, I want to be bold in proclaiming the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. But here's what happens too many times. is We find ourselves not wanting to be given a boldness and a fearlessness and a courage. We want God to make us comfortable again. And when you come up against that resistance, so many times what I hear people tell me is, you know, I think I might need a new job. And I'm like, why is that? I say, well, everybody at work isn't a Christian. They're all a bunch of pagans. I'm like, perfect! You're a paid missionary. And they're like, well, you know, it's hard. They make fun of me. Like, yeah, that's what pagans do. And like, but I just, I don't think that this is God's plan for me because this is really hard. I feel like if this was God's plan, that life would be easy. I go, oh, wait a second here. Jesus followed out God's plan for his life more perfectly than anybody ever has. And he went to a cross. See, the disciples recognized that their life was changing drastically at this moment. That life for them was never going to be the same again. That they were going to come against persecution that their lives were going to be put on the line, that they were going to go through incredible things. And when you read what happened to the disciples and the ends that they met, 
when you read about the, the ways they were stoned and shipwrecked and bitten by snakes and beheaded and speared and all sorts of other things, flogged and whipped, they never once backed down in the face of the resistance. They just continued to come back to God the Father and say, Jesus, would you fill me with a fearlessness so that no matter what it is that comes against me, I would proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, that Christ was crucified, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. And now new life has been afforded to us, that we have been reconciled. We are sons and daughters of the living God. They never asked for their life to get easier. They never asked for the culture to accept them. They asked for a fearlessness to follow out God's calling and God's plan for their life. So here's a question for you today. Do you want to live fearlessly proclaiming the gospel? If you made one resolution this year, more than your weight loss, which you should do, more than journaling, more than whatever else it is, living your life with a boldness and a fearlessness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ will see more kingdom change in your life than anything else that you could ever commit to doing. And the way that we start living a bold life is really we get this bold mindset. So you see, the good thing about boldness is anybody can be bold because it's not based on you. It's not based on your abilities. It's not based on your qualifications. Your boldness is based entirely on Jesus. It's based on who God is. It's based on what God has done. The disciples didn't say, God, help us to, to make ourselves bold. They said, God, would you give us boldness? It's all dependent upon him. And the first mindset that we have to get down, if you want to live a bold life for Jesus, is that, number one, nothing is impossible for God. In Matthew 19, 26, it says, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It doesn't say some things most things, a few things, it says all things are possible with God. Now the Bible is filled with story after story of how God appears to people, he speaks to people, he gives them a plan, and they listen to it, and they're like, mm-hmm, mm, mm, no, okay, here, God, here's the problem with that. Let me tell you where you went wrong on your plan. That, that's an impossibility. And God's always like, no. It might be impossible for you, but it's not impossible for me, which is all right, because I'm going to do the work anyways. You just have to be compliant. You just have to go along with my plan. Be a willing vessel. But we always look at the call of God in our lives or the dream that he puts inside of you, and we think, there's no way this can happen. That's completely, insanely, absurdly, stupidly impossible. It happened with Abraham. When God gave him the calling on his life and said, I'm going to make you the father of nations. He's 75 years old. His wife is, is old too. It says the way of the woman is gone. Biologically, it's impossible for him to have a child, let alone have nations come out of him. But he plays along with it. He tries to make it happen himself, find other ways around it, help God out in this process. It goes disastrously. And then he's 99 years old. 24 years have passed, and God comes back to him and says, a year from now, when I come here, you're going to have a son. His wife laughs. I love that. You ever had God tell you something that was so ridiculous you laughed about it and you're like, what did I eat last night? <laughs> but God says, why are you laughing? Nothing's too hard for me. Sure enough, a year later, he has a son. It was impossible, but God did it. When you look at what happened with Israel when they were slaves in Egypt and how God came to Moses and said, I'm going to lead everybody out of here. And he's like, okay, 
How? And then God does all these miraculous things and it leads them out of the, the nation of Egypt. And I think everybody's like, what on earth just happened? How, how is this possible? And then they get up to the Red Sea and they're trapped against the sea and all of the Egyptians are coming behind them. And I love how they're all like, oh, thanks a lot, God. It wasn't bad enough for us to have to die in Egypt. Now we've got to die out here. Where were you on that one? So glad we listened to you. And what does God do? He's like, nothing is impossible. And he just parts the water and they walk across. Nothing's impossible. When you go through all these different things, the story of Gideon. I love God sends an angel and says, oh, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, oh, you got the wrong person. Oh, me? No, no. No, I'm the weakest son of the weakest family and the weakest tribe of all of Israel. I am no mighty warrior. But God says, I'm going to use you to deliver your nation. And Gideon's like, that's impossible, God. Let me explain to you how this works. But he ended up putting his faith in God and delivered his nation. I love the disciples. They've seen Jesus do miracle after miracle. Time and time again, they see the impossible happen. And then when there's 5,000 people that are hungry, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you feed them? They're like, all right, God, here's the thing. We have like two loaves and a few, a few fish. And it says they're little fish, too. Not even big fish. The Bible describes them as small fish. And they're like, how on earth is this going to happen? Jesus, we can't do this. And he's always like, oh, man, guys, nothing is impossible for me. There might be lots of things that are impossible for you, but there is nothing that's impossible for me. So here's how this applies to you. What is the impossible thing that God wants to do in your life? Maybe you're looking at your family or your coworkers, and you said, God, I know that you want me to tell them about you. I know that you want to see them receive salvation in their life and be set free. I know that's your will for them. That's what you've called me to do in their life. But, man, they hate you, Jesus. They hate the church. Everything about God and the church, they hate. And you know what that, the answer to that is? Well, so did Saul. Saul hated Jesus. Saul hated the church. He was doing everything he could to kill him. At least your coworkers and family aren't killing Christians. That's what Saul's doing. He has a miraculous encounter with God, and God uses him to go and take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. There's nothing that's impossible for God. God is miraculous. There's nothing he cannot do. Whatever he has called you to do in your life, you can do it with boldness because you know that the God who nothing is impossible for is the one that's called you and that he is the one that's going to do it. Number two, the God who nothing is impossible for is your father. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So why does being a son or a daughter of God make you bold? It's because of the identity that comes along with the father-child relationship. When I was asked as a child who I was at church or wherever else I might be, I'd say, I'm Ken Brown's son. That's how I identified myself. That was the biggest part of who I was. I was Ken Brown's son. And that gave me an identity. That gave me rights. That gave me privileges. You see, my dad ran a Christian campground. So when I was the age of all the campers that would be there in the summer, I'd be out there doing my thing, and counselors would come up and they'd be like, hey, kid. I'm like, who's this kid you're talking about? 
you don't know who I am. And they'd be like, well, you can't do that. And I'd be like, I'm Ken Brown's son. They'd be like, who? <laughs> the guy that runs this place. I'm his son. Okay. And they just let me do whatever I wanted. Because I knew that my dad was the boss. My dad was in charge. There was nobody that could tell me I couldn't do the things that my dad told me I could do. My identity was found in who my father was. And that shaped me, it shaped everything about me. And so this is what that means for you. When you really have that revelation of the relationship that you have with God, that he is your father, it won't just give you boldness and confidence, it's going to give you a holy swagger. You're going to walk around like I was, like, I'm Ken Brown's son. I can do what I want. Because here's what's going to happen. When you receive resistance, the enemy might oppose you. Try to resist you, and it might seem like a strong attack. Well, here's the good news. Your daddy's bigger, and he's stronger than any enemy that you will ever face. The enemy might deprive you of resources. You might say, God, you've called me to do this, but I don't have what it takes to do that. Well, the good news is, your daddy has all the resources of heaven. And a good dad never deprives their child of what they need. And we have the holy, perfect father who will make sure that you have everything you need. You might have times where the enemy knocks you down and you get bruises on you. Well, here's the good news. Your daddy comes and he picks you up, he brushes you off, and then he goes and beats up the bully. You have nothing to be scared of. You can be bold when you know that you are a son or a daughter of God. And then lastly, God has poured out the Holy Spirit on you. This is something that really began to change my life when I came across this in Scripture. Was that The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus when he was doing his earthly ministry, when he was seeing water turn into wine and blind eyes open, when he was seeing crippled people get up and walk, when he was raising the dead, that same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that gave Jesus wisdom into situations and circumstances. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Holy Spirit that we received when we put our faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. The power of God is right here. It says that you are the temple of the living God. He's not looking for some building to live in. He's looking for a people to live in. That we are marked and we are defined by the presence of God inside of us. And when you continue to be filled by the Holy Spirit, notice it says that they came back and they prayed again and they were filled again with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a one-time thing. They were, kept coming back and they kept saying, Holy Spirit, would you fill me? And daily they were being filled by the Holy Spirit and it was empowering them to go out into the nations and to live out the calling that God had placed on their life with boldness, with power, and with authority. We need a bold mindset. That's how this year changes for us. That's how this church changes for us. That's how the city changes. Is when we, the few who have had the encounter with God, take on ourselves a bold mindset to walk out the holy calling out on every one of us. And as we do that, we will see miraculous things. We will see people come to Jesus that are far from him in ways that you can't even imagine. 
God said that he's a God who delights in going above and beyond what we can think or even imagine to ask for. And he's called you. The calling that we see on the disciples and the apostles in the book of Acts is the same calling that's on us today. And we need that same kind of boldness in our lives that they had. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks to us. And Lord, we pray now that you would search our hearts, that you would know us, and that you would speak to us today, now. And this morning, if you haven't been living boldly, if you've been living with fear, if you've been living with intimidation, then would you ask God that? Would you ask him to evaluate your heart? and to reveal to you the way that you've been living, and if it matches up with the holy calling that's on your life. And what is it that you need this morning to live a bold life? Is it that you need to have that conviction that there's nothing that's impossible for God? Have you been living, placing limitations on him, viewing impossibilities where he's called you? Have you been living your life believing in Jesus but never experiencing the relational part of it, never really knowing him as your father. And this morning, it just takes you crying out to him and saying, God, thank you for the forgiveness of my sins, but now I want the fullness of what you have for me. I want to know you as my father. I want your presence in me. Or maybe it's that you haven't been living daily being filled with the Holy Spirit and you need the boldness that comes from having God in you. This morning, God's here to meet every one of those things. He's ready to pour that out on all of you. So you take just a moment with me and pray whatever it was that God revealed to you that you need. Let's pray for that together. Father, we thank you for everything you've done in our hearts. Jesus, thank you for the life that we find in Jesus. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, but God, we also thank you for the calling that you have for us. And God, we want to be full, mature Christians walking into the plans that you have for us. We want to be those who boldly carry the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. And God, would you fill us with boldness? Would you send us as Radiant Church to our city, the state, to this nation, to all the corners of this world, carrying that message. And Jesus, we pray that as we're filled with the boldness that comes only from you, that we would see a fruit and a harvest like we read about in the book of Acts. Jesus, come and have your way amongst us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.